0: Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. Well, uh, it's good to be here on this Education Sunday. It's good to share together this common desire and passion to train up children in the paideia of the Lord. The text of the sermon this morning is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 9 through 17. And so before we read, let's bow and ask God's blessing. Let's pray once more. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for giving us your word, which makes us wise unto salvation. And now we pray that you would open it to to our eyes and to the eyes of our hearts. And thank you for giving us the gift of your Holy Spirit, and we ask that you would send him afresh to cause us to hear and obey your word to your glory. And so, Father, may the truth that is in Christ illuminate in us all that is dark, establish in us all that is wavering, comfort in us all that is wretched, accomplish in us all that is your goodness. And glorify in us the name of Jesus. In his mighty name we pray. Amen. We begin reading in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning with verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan... ...with all power and false signs and wonders... ...and with all wicked, wicked deception for those who are perishing... ...because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong de- delusion... So that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this, he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. The word of the Lord. Now then, there's an influential idea that has been around for a long time, and I wonder if you're familiar with it. It's an idea that was present at the time of the church fathers, the early church. It persisted through history and into the 20th century, and it's still around today. It's an idea that's had a tremendous amount of influence on the church, uh, but that shouldn't surprise us because ideas are consequential things. And it's a particularly subtle idea. It appeals to anyone who is serious uh, and determined to live the Christian faith. And it gives the illusion of showing a deeper and better way, perhaps. And yet for all that, its lengthy pedigree and its wide influence and its subtlety, it's an idea that I want to urge you to reject. A pastor and blogger named Peter Jones calls this idea radical Christianity. And in an article he wrote called, How Ephesians Killed My Radical Christianity, he wrote these words. He defines this idea as that strain of Christian thinking that says that living a normal Christian life, getting married, having children, raising them in Christ, loving your spouse, being faithful at your job, attending worship, reading your Bible, praying, loving the saints, and then dying is not enough and he continues. It's that strain of Christianity that says there must be something more that I must do to be a good Christian. The radical thinks and preaches that good Christians do amazing things for Jesus. This type of thinking is found in all branches of Christianity. There are mission weeks, revival meetings, monks who abandon all, elusive second blessings, pilgrimages to Rome, women who leave marriage and children far behind, men who leave jobs to enter the ministry, young men who believe that memorizing the Westminster Shorter Catechism is a means of grace. He was poking at some fellow Presbyterians there. Uh, Preachers who imply that word and sacraments are not enough, and conference speakers who demand that we pray more and more. The halls of faith echo with phrases like, be radical, give it all up for Jesus, sacrifice everything. So again, I wonder if you've heard that kind of thing before. How, How many of you have probably, maybe even grown up in the midst of that kind of Um, teaching of radical Christianity and and the siren song of radical Christianity sounds attractive to so many Christians who are serious about living the Christian faith but Pastor Jones's story is this for him it was the book of Ephesians that overturned this idea of radical Christianity that it's the real life uh, that it's a higher calling that it's a more faithful life and Jones does use the word radical, but he says radical is what describes the first three chapters of Ephesians. If you know how Paul writes, he writes uh, 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 at the beginning, he, writes, uh, 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 he, he lays out this high Christology and theology, and then he turns to practical living in light of it. So in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Jones says they really do give a radical picture of a great and glorious redemption. But then he says... Continue to quote here, the real Paul in the latter chapters of the book of Ephesians disappoints us. There's nothing in these chapters about doing amazing things for Christ. There's nothing about missions or evangelism. There's nothing about changing the world or your community. There's no call to give away all you have. Paul does not encourage the men to examine themselves to see if they're called to the ministry. Women are not encouraged to leave all behind and be fully devoted to Jesus. There's no call to parents to make sure they raise radical children. And he concludes Paul is radical, but not in the way that we like. He is radical about killing sin. He wants us to stop having fits of anger. He wants us to uh, cut out our gossiping tongue. He wants us to be thankful in all circumstances. He wants us to pray. He wants us to get rid of greed. He wants us to make sure we keep our speech clean. All this sounds pretty boring and hard. What sounds more exciting? A speaker talking about reaching your community for Christ or one talking about taming your wayward tongue? Finally, we don't like Paul's call to be radical because it's a lot easier to love the lost whom we haven't seen than to love our wife whom we see every day. We don't like it because forgiveness is hard, fornication is easy. We don't like it because we would rather be known for doing something amazing than be obscure and keep the peace. We don't like it because Paul says a lot about submission and nothing about evangelizing the ladies at Starbucks. In the end, those calls to be radical aren't really radical at all. They are just a distraction. The Christian life is not about going someplace for Jesus or doing great things for him. It's about being holy right where you are. Close quote and amen. Now when I heard this several years back, I read these words, it struck a chord with me and it cast my thoughts back to an earlier era in my life when I had uh, my own enchantment with radical Christianity crushed and realized that it's not really changing the world or doing something more to be a good Christian. It's not about being fully devoted, whatever somebody would define that is. It's not about giving away everything I own, that those are really just a deceptive mirage. Here's what I want to say today, both to myself and to you, friends. God has called you and me to simple faithfulness. Faithful to Christ. Faithful to his church. Faithful to obeying him faithful to the truth that he has given you. Listen, if you could just live up to the truth that God has given you, believe me, that's plenty. Living for simple faithfulness probably won't put you on the cover of a magazine or on the front page of a website. It probably won't give you a reality TV show. Lord, I would never pray for that for my worst enemy. Uh, You may not have a building or a day on the calendar named after you, but it's the real Christian life. Living a normal Christian life, getting married, having children, schooling your children for Christ, loving your husband, loving your wife, being faithful at your job, attending worship, reading your Bible, praying, loving the saints, and then dying is plenty. So I'm asking the question here on Education Sunday, how can we be faithful to God? How can we be faithful to God's call to educate our children faithfully, biblically? And of course, There are a lot of ways the Bible might answer that question. There are a number of foundational realities we could point to. But I want to look at our text today to hear this answer. The call to be faithful wherever and whenever you live is the call to love the truth. To love the truth. So in our text this morning, three times we hear Paul mention the truth. Verse 10, he speaks of those who refuse to love the truth and so be saved Verse 12, he mentions those who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And then he flips over to a positive way of speaking and speaks in verse 13 um, of being saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, perhaps you heard this text, you're like, whoa, David Bryant, what are you going to talk about today? I'm predicting the end times or something. You know, No, it's not like that this text is actually a notoriously thorny passage. Who is this lawless one? What's restraining him? Whom is Satan deceiving and Why? When did these events take place? What is Paul talking about? So I'll leave that to Pastor Redding to explain after I leave. <laughs> but I really uh, don't believe that we need to understand those details about the day of the Lord or identify the lawless one or the restrainer and so forth to grasp Paul's basic point here. Notice, Paul says that there is a group of people who are under the influence of satanic deception and who therefore perish. They're destroyed, furthermore, Paul writes, for a particular reason. Verse 10, they refused to love the truth and so be rescued from their perishing. Again, um, verse uh, 12, they did not believe the truth, but instead had pleasure in unrighteousness. Uh, Verse 10, the New King James reads, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. That's a more literal reading. They didn't receive the love of the truth. Again, verse 13, Paul says, God chose you for salvation. How? Through belief in the truth. This is your choosing. This is your salvation. And so with this repetition, Paul is obviously making a point here about the importance of the truth. And we're especially focusing in on verse 10 on this phrase, the love of the truth, to love the truth. Now, let me begin by making just a couple of sort of big picture observations about the love of the truth here in this passage. First, it's obvious that the love of the truth here, the way Paul talks about it, is the gracious gift of God. Notice that Paul writes that those who are deceived and who do not believe and who, who, who perish refused the offer of the love of the truth. They did not receive the love of the truth freely being given to them. The love of the truth has to be received. Truth is outside of you. and has to make its way into you. And so the truth is a gift. God reveals the truth graciously. Every one of us was born in sin. You know, even a little baby is born believing the lie that he's the measure of all things. I remember seeing a um, table talk magazine a number of years ago. And uh, the headline, the, the topic of it was total depravity. And had this beautiful little baby, of a, a picture of a newborn baby nestled in a little beautiful blanket right there. Total depravity. So that's you and me. The gospel... Uh, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So uh, you and I in our natural state are those who are perishing. Our minds are blinded and thus we do not believe. It's not flattering, but it's it's what the word of God tells us about ourselves. So left to ourselves, we will refuse the truth and thus believe. And if you can say today authentically, I love God, I love the truth, then no, it's not because you're just special, you're extra smart, you have extra sensitivity or intellectual powers or good sense or a privileged upbringing somebody didn't have. The Bible says, apart from Christ, you and I, we we heard it this morning in the confession, none is righteous. How many? No, not one. No exceptions. And so it is by his great grace, his mere favor that God imparts the great gift of the love of the truth. God loves to open eyes. He loves to cause us to say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, I have chosen the way of truth. So we choose the truth because he first graciously chose to give us the truth. So second, another observation here in 2 Thessalonians 2, the love of the truth is the dividing line between those who perish and those who are saved. A love of the truth, whether it's absence or it's presence, is the crucial issue for unbelief. Notice how Paul shows God's judgment on those people who did not receive the love of the truth. In verses 11 and 12, Paul says uh, God sends a strong delusion to them so that they should believe the lie and not believe the truth. Many of you are no doubt thinking of Paul's words in Romans chapter 1. Paul says God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity because they exchanged the truth of, about God for a lie and worshipped and served God the creature rather than the creator. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. God gave them up to the lust that they desperately desired. You can hear echoes of that here. Um, God's judgment is a giving over to believe the lie because they exchanged the truth of God for the truth, that God uh, for, um, um, for uh, their own truth. So uh, there's no salvation apart from faith in Christ, and there's no faith apart from a new heart that loves the truth. So, so just pause to, uh, for a moment to think, Uh, of of a lost friend, a lost family member, a lost neighbor. Why is this person lost in his or her unbelief? What can you say about him or her? Well, at, at a very fundamental level, he doesn't love the truth that is in Christ. That's the root issue underneath sin and unbelief. By the way, it's the root issue under my sin too. I really don't believe. Unbelief really is the root of all sin. Notice again, verse 13, there's this description of the children of God. They have obtained sanctification, salvation by the Spirit and belief in the truth. God chose them, showered his grace on them, and so they receive the love of the truth, so they believe. And note well, this is the dividing line here between those who believe and those who do not believe. The love of the truth is at the root of the matter. So once again, verse 10, the result of not receiving the truth is perishing. That word perish means to be destroyed. It's the, it's the, word, the familiar word from John 3.16 and it's the very opposite of salvation. It's a common word in the New Testament used some hundred times and it's often paired by way of contrast with salvation. You see those two words paired side by side. Those who do not love the truth are not being saved. They are actively perishing. It's a dangerous thing to cling to lies, isn't it? Now, If the lie concerns something very trivial, it may be no big deal. I I read a number of years ago that the inventor of petroleum jelly ate a glop of it every day. And he lived a very long life, so... Kind of a greasy long life. But if you think it's a good idea to drink a sip of Drano every day, that's no trivial matter. It's going to kill you. You are dying as you drink it. It's not just the destruction awaits you. While you're drinking, you're being destroyed. So it's a dangerous thing to cling to lies when the lies matter. And loving the truth in Christ, rejecting lies, what God calls lies, is the most serious of matters. In our day, when moral relativism reigns, every man, in the words of judges, must determine what's right in his own eyes. And the whole edifice of our uh, nation's education system is built on that premise, the notion that truth is not revealed or discovered, but instead is constructed. It's not the truth, it's your truth. So truth is a personal or tribal construct, and it's up to you to determine what the truth is. Again, your truth. Our friends, the Bible is clear. If you don't receive a love for the truth, the truth as God defines it, as Uh, The God who is himself the ultimate reality and ultimate arbiter of what is true and real, you will perish under his judgment. And that perishing is not a future reality. Verse 10, those who are perishing, present tense, ongoing, those who are now perishing. If you don't love the truth, you are already perishing. But again, those who, verse 10, perish may receive the love of the truth and so be rescued saved this is the great new testament vocabulary for restoration and rescue in christ there is a way to be rescued plucked like a brand from the fire from the destruction that lies in the way of exchanging the truth for the lie in christ there is a way to be restored to him so loving the truth is ultimately consequential Receiving a love for the truth is the massive chasm dividing those who believe in Christ and are thus being rescued by him and those who do not believe the truth that is in Christ and are thus perishing apart from Christ. Receiving a love for the truth is this great line of demarcation between those who know God in Christ and those who are cut off from him. So, there's no higher level. There's no deeper secret. There's no no hidden key There's no secret knowledge. This is radical Christianity. That's about as radical as it gets. Must I remind us how radical simply believing the truth of Scripture has become in 2023? If you confess that the triune God is, that He made the world, that He made humans in His own image, male and female, that mankind is corrupt and fallen and in need of a savior, that Jesus Christ is the God, man, and only savior, and salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone and can be found in his church through scripture alone. You know, christian stuff. The Apostles' Creed, the things that Christians have been saying for 2,000 years, Things that a few decades ago signaled that you were part of the cultural ascendancy. Today, those things mark you as a radical. You are radically opposed. You're a vicious hater. You are in danger of somehow killing people just by saying those words. And so, my message today is let's lean into that, let's be radical. Let's just simply love the truth that God has given us in the Bible. And let's seek the smile of the Father. Does it really matter if influencers, if if elites on the coasts of our nation approve or disapprove of what we're saying and doing and how we're living? Does it really matter? Doesn't it matter that our Father considers us faithful? Are we seeking the well-done, good and faithful servant by him? Peter said it best, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks for you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet, as a radical, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And so the question we need to ask, what does it mean to love the truth? And especially, what does it mean to nurture and um, a love of the truth in our children all right a couple of big theological answers to that and then i want to get down to some, some maybe some more particular the practical things what does it mean to love the truth theological answer number one to love the truth is to love Christ because can you complete the logical impact of that because Christ is the truth Jesus taught this himself. I am, and is one of his great I am statements in John. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Um, um, John, in his preamble to his gospel, and, the, and the, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is the, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is himself the divine Logos who is the integrating principle of all knowledge and human thought and language. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the very incarnation of truth. But again, Jesus Christ is not some ethereal principle in outer space. He's not a concept. He's not a philosophical category. John borrowed uh, philosophical language from the uh, uh, from the Greco-Roman world of the first century to speak of Jesus as the Logos, but by that he didn't mean to imply that he was again a category or in uh, uh, Plato's other dimension where the real stuff really lies. No, he's a person. He is Yahweh, the divine second person of the uh, the second person of the divine community we call the Trinity. He is personally present here with us. And among us, we are his temple where he dwells. He is the God who creates and speaks and reveals and brings sinful men and women into relationship with himself. Loving truth means loving Christ, who is the truth. So hear what I'm saying. I'm not simply exhorting you to love the truth, though I'm saying that. I'm saying that if you're a Christian and you love Christ, who is the truth, then you do love the truth. A lover of Christ is a who is the truth is who you are. And as your love of Christ grows, your love of the truth grows. Now, my other theological answer to the question, what does it mean to love the truth? To love the truth is to love the word of God. Again, all this hangs together. Jesus is himself the word of God who has revealed himself um, in his word. Uh, David said in Psalm 119, your law is truth, verse 142. Verse 151, your commandments are truth. And he said, verse 97, oh, how I love your law. And verse 70, I delight in your law. And Jesus taught us as he prayed in John 17, 17, the high priestly prayer, your word is truth, he prayed to the Father. So the word of God is truth. To love the truth is to love the word of God. You can't love the truth without loving the word of God. And when we love the word of God, we love what it reveals to us. So, what is the Bible? show you? What does it reveal to you as you linger long in the Bible, reading it, studying it, hearing it, memorizing it, placing it in your heart? Are we offended when the Bible says something unflattering to us or about our children? No. We love it when the Word of God shows us what we really are. Are we resistant when the Bible overturns something we thought to be true? No. We love it when the Word of God enlightens our minds. Is it a small thing when we discover some, some, small, uh, some way that we've been failing to obey the scriptures? No. We, we, God teaches us to tremble at his word because we love it so much and we fear displeasing our heavenly father. And we love pleasing him. And we love that he is pleased with us in Christ. So you simply can't separate loving the truth from loving the word of God. And we need to to fix our minds and hearts and affections on loving Christ, loving his word, and loving the truth, all three strands uh, together in one beautiful cord and inseparably woven into the Christian life. So you put these together, you arrive at a very obvious but needful statement. Real education, Christian education, centers on the revealed truth of God. And therefore, the education of children for God means constantly pointing them to Christ, constantly grounding their learning in Scripture as the authoritative word of God. Education that is formation in the school of Christ and his word. Education that sets Christ aside, that ignores or belittles or pushes back against him as Lord and Redeemer is just anti-God education. Education that sets Scripture aside, that ignores or belittles or pushes back against Scripture as the true word of God is anti-God education. But be encouraged, friends, the opposite is true. Faithful education exalts and glorifies Jesus as Lord and reveals his truth, the truth of his word. So our goal in educating our children is to point them to Christ, to ground them in the scriptures. I, I like making things simple. Does an education exalt Christ and ground them in the scriptures? A lot of other stuff can be... Uh, uh, can, can vary beyond that. There's so much, uh, uh, we, can, we can teach under a shade tree in a different language. And if we're doing those two things, we can have a faithful education. So what does it mean to love the truth? I've spoken of these two big, sort of broad theological categories. Let me put it another way. What, what does it look like for a Christian to live a life loving the truth? And so what kind of preacher would I be if I didn't have an alliterated outline? So four P's. Let me just give you four P's, P words, that help you um, think about what it looks like to live a life of loving the truth. First of all, preciousness. What's precious to you? To love the truth is to embrace the truth as being very, very precious. Buy it and don't sell it. Receive it and never give it away. Guard it. Be vigilant with it. Whatever the value of your financial portfolio is, the truth is far more precious. And of course, the scripture tells us very clearly, Christ Jesus is himself the most valuable treasure of all. If we possess him, we have the most precious of possessions. Peter contemplated this in his epistle. He speaks of coming to him, Jesus, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious and you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ therefore it's also contained in the scripture behold I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone elect precious and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame therefore to you who believe he is precious Christ is precious to his Father, he is precious to the Spirit, and he's become precious to us because in his grace he's welcomed us into this divine community that exalts Christ. And it's because he is supremely precious and we reckon reckon him as precious that we can then place everything else as planets orbiting around him at the center. And so... The real, uh, the, the true goal of education, the true goal of training up our children, both in the church and in the Christian home, is to nurture a love for Jesus in our children. To nurture a relationship with Jesus in which our children treasure the Savior as that pearl of great price for which, which exceeds everything they own and is therefore worthy of giving up all they have to attain it. So does this schooling cultivate in the child a a better, truer, more biblical perception of an attraction to Jesus and all of his glory as Lord and Redeemer? A second P is the word pursuit. Pursuit. You know, if something is precious to you, you seek to gain it. You're going to go after it. The more precious something is, the more zealous you are to attain it and to keep it. When you love truth and count it precious, you pursue it. It is that pearl of great price that you're willing to sacrifice to gain. You you thirst for knowledge. You long for understanding. You yearn to be wise in the scriptures. You look for blind spots. You challenge preconceptions. uh, You 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 ask for those around you who love you uh, to look at your life and help you get it right. You risk looking ignorant because you're willing to say, "I don't know." Help me understand. Whatever it takes, whatever sacrifices need to be made, whatever risk I need to take, whatever energy needs to be expended, whatever priorities need to be rearranged, whatever needs to be guarded, truth is worth it. So pursue it. So I'm really commending to you the life of the mind. The pursuit of truth is not separate from the pursuit of Christ. We understand again that Christ is the truth and his word is truth. So envision this active pursuit of truth in the context of your life right now. Yeah, I know how busy you are. I also know how distracted you are. I know how pulled you are toward many, many things. I know. So whether it be as a homemaker, a student, professional, a tradesman, a teacher, a salesman, primarily, you are a truth pursuer. A third P word is possession. Possession. I want to exhort you to see the truth as precious, to pursue it. And then, when you're given the truth as a gift from God, possess it. Make it yours. Let it become part of you that will transform you and sanctify you for Christ's sake. Paul speaks of being sanctified, made holy, set apart by the truth. Just to amplify this again, consider... I kind of surveyed uses of the phrase the truth in the New Testament. And you see a variety of verbs before the word truth. So here you have uh, believe the truth or um, refuse the truth. Galatians 3 and 5 and 1 Peter 1, you have the phrase obey the truth. 1 Corinthians 13, rejoice in the truth. Frequently in Paul's epistles, Corinthians, uh, Ephesians, 1 Timothy, speak the truth. 2 Timothy and James speak of resisting or wandering from the truth. And of course, John um, frequently uses the phrase know the truth. And all of those sound right to me, they're familiar, but there's another way that John speaks of our relationship with the truth that kind of stood out. First John 1:8, 1, 110 and 2, four. Um, John speaks of the truth being in us. And then first John 3:19, he speaks of being of the truth. And there's kind of a delightful ambiguity of that of the truth. I'm of the truth. Who are you? Oh I'm, I'm of the truth. What are you all about? What, what, what's your, what do you like to do? I'm of the truth. of Let it be what you want it to be. I'm of the truth. It, 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 which speaks of sort of possession and ownership. Um, if something is in you, it belongs to you. It's part of you. If you're of something, you belong to it. You're part of it. You all have arms, but you don't have somebody else's arms. You have your arm. Your arm is part of you. It's in you. It's of you. So what I'm saying here is that the biblical saving faith goes beyond mere knowledge of the truth of Christ, though it certainly includes that. It's knowing it, believing it, obeying it. Biblical saving faith goes beyond mere assent to the truth of Christ, though we must certainly agree with the truth and say, what I think on my own is not right, but I assent to this being true outside of me. Saving faith is trusting in the truth of Christ. It's a personal leaning into this truth. It is in you. You are of it. Salvation is entrusting your very soul to Christ Himself as He's revealed to you by the Word, so loving the truth means that you are of the truth. It's in you. You own it. You latch onto it the way a baby latches onto a mother. And this is the way Peter talks about uh, um, uh, craving the pure milk of the Word, like a little baby resting in it, acting in its power. So when I talk about possess, it's it's sort of we sort of think, well, it's something outside of us, and I make it part of. I I, I grab it and choose to own it. And that's true. But I'm really talking about what Pope Benedict said when he said, it's not we who possess the truth, but the truth which possesses us. So pursue the truth. When you come to find it, be possessed by it. And finally, one last word, and it's a big one. It's practice. Practice the truth. Consider what John wrote in 1 John chapter 1. He says, if, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk in just as he walked. By the way, there's a little ethics book I read years ago and the title of the book is To Walk As He Walked. I love that title. The real purpose of the Christian life and the real purpose of training up our children is not merely so that they would rearrange the mental furniture uh, uh, in the the house of their their head. It's so that they will be possessed by the truth and live it. An educator named David Hicks wrote uh, a, a book called Norms and Nobility. Don't go look it up on uh, Amazon. It's, it's really hard to read. It's actually quite dense. But it, it's very it's really quotable. He has some really insightful things in the book. He says this, The end of education is not thinking. It is acting. It's not knowing what to do. It is doing it. He said, The purpose of education is not the assimilation of facts or the retention of information, but the habituation of the mind and body to will and act in accordance with what one knows. And finally, the sublime premise is that right thinking will lead to right, if not righteous, acting. That, that's a very biblical way of thinking. Right thinking leads to right living. They're bound together, practicing the truth. Truth must be practiced. In the Bible, there's no wall of separation between knowing the truth and doing the truth. We tend to separate those two, don't we? Those are not two different buckets. It's the same bucket. We believe that you can know the truth and somehow not act on it but you can still be considered to be believing the truth. But what if believing is not essentially a mental activity? What if it's a habitual, lived-out, practical activity? The truth is something that is in you, and it's in you only when you are practicing it. And isn't that James's point in James chapter 2? He rebukes those who think they can have faith, belief in the truth, and yet not display works. Well, guess what? Demons do that. They do a really fine job of it. So there's a condition of knowing the truth. Jesus said, "Uh, um, uh, if you abide in my word, you're my disciples indeed. Yes, you're the ones who know the truth and you're set free. So you'll know the truth and be set free as you do the truth. So it's not that you know the truth in order to do the truth. You do the truth in order to know the truth. We could talk about that a long time, but just noodle on that for a while. The psalm says, blessed is the man who, not that he knows. The man isn't blessed who knows. Yes, he ought to know. Blessed is the man who believes. Yes, he ought to believe. Blessed is the man who does what? Walks. So precious pursuit, possession, and practice. And let me just say this by way of conclusion. Parents, maybe you're thinking, boy, I hope my children are listening. And yes, I hope they are too. Children, I hope you're listening. But what I'm really saying is I'm speaking to you as parents. This preciousness, pursuit, possession, and practice. I'm really speaking of you. Parents and teachers, because here's what I know is true. I've been doing this education thing for for quite some time and the one non negotiable, um, the one unchangeable constant that is always there. Now, there, there are unique circumstances here too, but there's the one constant that's always there when there's a child who gets it and there's a child who leaves and is faithful. It was parents who were faithful. Now again, sometimes God just works miraculously in a child's heart and I love that. He always, God is always doing new things. But there's this constant of parents who are living the truth. Parents for whom the truth is precious, who are pursuing the truth, who are possessed by the truth and practice the truth. That is the real gift we're giving our children. And I opened my sermon this morning speaking about radical Christianity and I, I just encourage you to reject the idea that you have to do something amazing in order for your Christian faith to be real. You know, Seek the second blessing, abandoning all, make a, make a pilgrimage, leave something behind, give it all up. But I'm not exhorting you to give everything up because you already have. I'm not exhorting you to be something different because that's who you are. As a Christian, you gave up everything to follow Christ, and then what does he do? He turns around He sends you right back to it to live in the middle of it, amid the muddainness of life. Again, you'll find those who say, well, you need this extra level you need to attain to really live the Christian life. Don't believe it. They're wrong. The word radical comes from a Latin root. Of course it does. Uh, Radix, which means Root. The word radical means all the way down to the roots. What's the root of the Christian life? It's loving the truth. God calls us to love the truth and so to love the one who is the truth, Christ himself. So do you love the truth? Do you look at yourself and say, you know, I can't fully explain it, but I just, I love the word of God. I love truth. I love that I know Christ. I love the truth of Christ and I want to follow him. Well, If so, you are plenty radical. Be the kind of radical who longs for God to teach me, who hungers for more truth, who sacrifices to educate your children according to that truth, who is willing to follow truth wherever it leads. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle and who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness, who speaks the truth in his heart. But as for me, my prayers to you, O Lord, in the acceptable time. O God, in the multitude of your mercy, hear me in the truth of your salvation, for your merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Father, protect us from every evil way, from hypocrisy, from fear and doubt, from ignorance and laziness. Instead, Father, by your grace, work in us great love for the truth, for Christ, for your word. Cause us to see your truth as very precious. Cause us to buy it and never sell it. To find wisdom in your truth and walk in it. And then, O Lord, send your Holy Spirit to help us practice the truth. To follow it wherever it leads. Lord, we're humble before you, the God of truth. So teach us that we may learn to be like Christ, your Son and our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.